Hello and welcome to Meandering with Myrn, a potpourri of podcast by me, veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. Join me as I ponder any and all things animal and human, what we know and what we don't, where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. Most of us don't think of pet cats and dogs as they relate to land races. In fact, most of us don't think about land races at all. When most of us think about the evolutionary path that led our cats and dogs to our home, at best we see this beginning with the division of ancient feline ancestors into large and small wildcat species. Then one of the latter somehow gives rise to the cats sleeping on our beds. At the same time, we often see dogs following a more direct path from wolf to human intervention to the dogs in our homes. Between these wild ancestors and our pets, we envision a human-driven process called domestication performing this magical transformation. In this scenario, we imagine a few more daring cats and dogs venturing closer to humans who offer them food and teach them everything they need to know to please those people. We seldom give any thought to the self-initiated process that led those animals to approach those people in the first place. This is where land races and their influence on these animals' behaviors and bonds with people come in. But because there are multiple definitions of land races out there, I need to state up front the one I'm using. This definition contains several key elements. One, Although land-raised animals have recognizable feline and canine behaviors and physiology and live in close proximity to humans, they make their own choices. They determine where and how they're going to live, what and where they're going to eat or drink, who they're going to mate with, how they're going to raise any young, and what they're going to teach them. If they make the wrong choices, the consequences are theirs. Two, land race animals are well adapted to the geographic environments in which they live. These include the ability to cope with any climatic or other environmental changes in it, any diseases or parasites, and any variations in the food and water supply. Three, land races are not the result of any human breeding interference. This is important because sometimes originally from land race populations have been captured and bred for show or other functions and marketed as land race. While human manipulated animals may have land race roots, they're not members of a land race. For example, human food supplies and garbage that attract rats, mice, and other vermin 
may cause small wildcats to move closer to human habitations. These land-raised animals may have dispatched the rodent population and slept in some secluded nook in the barn. The farmers tolerated the sleeping cats because of the service they provided. The cats tolerated the farmers who didn't interfere with their ability to hunt in the barn. When feline land races with appealing looks from different environments began their transition to purebreds, some of them appeared in the first purebred cat shows in the 1800s. Reports of these events suggest that the early animals being judged were more land race than purebred. Judges wore heavy leather coverings and thick gauntlet gloves. The wooden benches provided for the less wealthy often were occupied by poor workers on their lunch breaks who considered these shows a bet-worthy blood sport. They would bet on how long the judge could hang on to the cat and how long it would take to catch the cat if the judge couldn't, and anything else that could entertain them and possibly win them some cash. In their book, Dogs, Understanding Canine Behavior and Evolution, behavioral ecologist Raymond Coppinger and Lorna Coppinger provide insight into how some land races got their names. They describe the behaviors of Eastern European livestock guarding dogs as they moved sheep between summer pastures in rugged mountainous terrains to those in warmer valley locations for the winter. As they make these trips, some dogs breed with free-roaming, unowned dogs hanging around the small villages their flocks pass through. When flocks merge with other flocks and their dogs during these semi-annual migrations, those dogs may mate with each other too. Thus, females in heat might mate with males from other locations within the same geographic areas. Still others might be killed by humans or other animals for one reason or another. The result is a human tolerant as well as adapted canine population with similar physical features whose members possess the physical, mental, and bond potential to survive in that environment. Sometimes the resultant dynamic, function-oriented, human-tolerant dogs might attract the attention of people with little knowledge of these animals and their history. Some of those people might ask, what breed of dog is that? When the shepherd looks confused, the visitor might add, where did the dog come from? At this point, the shepherd logically might respond with the obvious place name, such as the Pyrenees. That vignette brings us to a third characteristic of land race animals. Unlike human-bred domestic animals, 
Landry's genetic and behavioral makeup is the result of these animals' geographic isolation and willingness to tolerate certain people and perform certain functions for those people. Over time, as these human-animal interactions became more common, locals also would describe the animals based on their function, such as vermin killers and herding, driving, or guarding livestock. Eventually, DNA testing of members of various landrace species would indicate that, although there is a degree of similarity in their genetic makeup, there also is more diversity, which is what you'd expect from generations of free-roaming animals living in changing environments in the same geographic area, who may need to reinvent themselves to survive if conditions change. How much could any recent land race heritage of cats and dogs influence the behavior and bond capacity of the cats and dogs destined to be pets? To answer that, we first need to determine whether the animals truly are part of a land race population. Land races aren't feral cats or dogs. They're not domestic animals who were lost or abandoned by humans and mustered the wherewithal to live by their wits and reproduce. Land race animals have lived in and adapted to changes in specific geographic areas over long periods of time. They're genetically different from ferals. Think of land races as a transition between wild, domestic, and companion animals. Although they may share the same geographic area and somehow gain from each other's presence, they're not domestic animals as we know them. Unfortunately, the gradual depletion of the supply of truly lost or abandoned dogs and cats from established companion animal gene pools may lead overzealous rescues to capture and transport animals that may possess more land race heritage and less pet potential. Naive but well-meaning adopters who believe that all free-roaming animals are created equal and want only to live with a person who loves them may perpetuate the market for these animals. Unfortunately, some of these animals may not live up to their expectations. When land-raised animals are used as foundation stock for the creation of new breeds, that eventually may find their way into companion animal households within a relatively short period of time, they may display behaviors and bonding orientations that their owners find troublesome, if not worse. Land races occupy a unique niche in the wild domestic companion animal behavior and bond evolutionary spectrum. I leave you with a question I ponder as I see the increasing numbers of wild animals undergoing human-induced rapid evolutionary change 
as we destroy their habitats and they're forced to adapt to ours. Will they too eventually evolve into land races? It seems likely, but if so, then what? You've been listening to a podcast by veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. For more podcasts, commentaries, and books about animal behavior and the human-animal bond, and links to behavior and bond sites, check out my website at www.mmilani.com. For more specific information, feel free to email me at mm@mmilani.com. All rights related to the content of this podcast are retained by Myrna Milani. The background music, Molly on the Shore by Percy Granger, is used with permission from Katova Arts, www.katova.com.